Let's look at Genesis chapter 1 then and let's just uh, have a prayer. Oh Lord, what is man that you are mindful of him, that you should care for him, that you should visit him. And we thank you Lord today that you can open up the scriptures to us. This is your word, this is scripture, this is unique and we give you thanks that this bears no likeness to other creation stories of other civilizations that are so different. We thank you that you are the one God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So help us just to receive this word from yourself and to give you praise and glory that this word can transform our lives and just make us more like Jesus. Help us to hear from you today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I haven't said much about science because I'm not a scientist. But I just want to mention one or two things by way of introduction there. And maybe you know them already. Forgive me if you do. Don't mean me to tell you the origin of man has always been a great interest. A great uh, inquiry since Charles Darwin wrote his book The Origin of Species. And since Darwin's time mankind found an alternative something else to believe other than the fact that we believe anyway that man was a direct creation of God you remember I said to you that this is a special word in Genesis chapter 1 a special word in God's word uh, for creation it's the word bara again it's not the kind that you push but this word bara and that word bara for creation means something unique Something really special. And some have taken it to mean creation out of nothing. That would tie in with Hebrews 11 and verse 3 we mentioned before. By faith we understand the universe was formed at God's command. So that what is seen was not made out of what was visible. And you'll be aware of course that that's a million miles or should we say a million years or millions of years away from the account that we have in Genesis chapter 1 away from the account the basic belief of evolution what is the basic belief of evolution let me try and summarize it in a very few words it says it is, it is that all different forms of life evolved from one simple form which in turn evolved from inorganic matter and all by a natural process taking a long period of time now because no one saw what was actually happening all those millions or billions of years ago, that the theory cannot be tested in the laboratory. And so instead what we have is, or what people tell us we have, is indirect evidence that comes from a study of rocks and of fossils. And this means that scientific data can be interpreted in different ways. Now, there are basically two kinds of evolutionists. There are those who do not believe in God whatsoever. And they are called the atheistic evolutionists. And those who do believe in God and that God used evolution as the way of the creating the world and, and mankind, we call them theistic evolutionists. But we find that the basic belief of the evolution is that something which was not man became man, albeit through a very long process. 
But look again at Genesis chapter 1 and look at verses 21, 24, 25. They all have this repeated phrase there in Genesis 1, 21, 24, 25, according to their kinds. And that's important in the word of God. According to their kinds. And that word kind there means that nothing reproduces anything that is essentially different from itself. A human being always produces a human being. A rabbit always produces a rabbit. A cat always produces a cat. But we all know that you can get changes called mutations. And some scholars tell us that, Old Testament scholars say that the mutations are not essentially different from the parents. So Genesis excludes the idea that one particular plant will produce and become something entirely different. Or one species will become some other kind of species, something entirely different. And the question for the Christian is this. Do we alter Genesis to comply with the various theories of the scientists? We said that Genesis is the word of God, it's scripture. And the other question is, do the scientists get it right? I was looking through my cuttings that I have over the years. I was looking for this cutting that I kept many years ago. But do you realise in 1912, I think it was, 1912, there was such a thing called Pill Down Man. 1912. And that was hailed as the missing link. In fact, they were so sure about it that they actually put it into the textbooks, the scientific textbooks for children at school. 41 years down the line, 1953, they discovered a professor was having a hoax on one of his scientific friends. And what he got was a human skull, and to that human skull he attached the jawbone of an ape. But these scientists believed this was the missing link. Pill down man, the professor was discovered 41 years down the line. Had a wee look at uh, some of my cuttings. Well, I was looking for Pildem and I couldn't actually find it. But uh, I've got this, these cuttings that I've kept on the newspapers. And this says here that uh, boiled veg were at the root of man's evolution. You may have think, thought it was a primordial soup. That's what they say. It was a soup at the beginning. It's actually vegetation. Vegetation was the reason that man changed his face. He was able to get bigger teeth, a bigger brain because of vegetables. Now, if you're not eating your vegetables, your brain was not as big as it should be. We discovered that boiled veg are the root of man's evolution. But just in case you thought that was the only thing that happened to the man, it says here, scientists deliver the origin of species in a global pizza. You may have thought it was soup at the beginning, and it changed to vegetables. It's now pizza. Okay, they've discovered that pizza. Life did not begin in a primordial soup, but on the surface of a primordial pizza, according to the latest theory. What was the other one that I had here? 
it has no relationship to us it says a breakthrough in genetic analysis has shown that modern human beings are not descended from Neanderthal man it proved the contention that Neanderthal man was an evolutionary dead end they're changing their mind how it actually went and one little more cutting I've got here it says earliest human beings were no slouch the image of the earliest human being as a creature that shuffled around with its knees bent in the manner of a chimpanzee has been challenged by the scientists at Liverpool University can they make up their minds how many theories have we got to go through and there it is, it's not a soup it's vegetation, it's not vegetation it's a pizza that actually got us to be going from whatever it was to be an actual human being folks, the theories abound regarding the origin of man but we have the word of God here uh, before us regarding dating all these millions and millions of years the carbon dating that is often quoted is only good from 20,000 to 60,000 years. In fact, they say it's very accurate up to 4,000 years. But there's no way that carbon dating can be accurate for millions and millions and millions of years. There's no dating system. So how do they come against these great big dates that we're talking about? There's two things that they use. And one of it is that the decomposition of matter decomposes at a certain rate. And what they do, what they find that decomposition happening in our modern times, and they keep that going back and back and back and back. And they come up with millions or billions of years for the origin of man or the origin of the earth. That decomposition that decomposes at a certain rate, they take that back and back and back and back and say it must have been like that for all time. But we know that in the world there was a flood and all kinds of catastrophes that can happen that can really short circuit that and make something appear to take millions of years to happen in a comparatively short period of time. The other thing that they use is not only the, the decomposition rate, but they also use the evolutionary theory. The natural ascent of man, the, the origin of species, and the... Um, oh, it's just not coming to my mind at the moment. The moment the things that they actually use but we have the word of God if you want some books I'll bring the books along that I've got they're up in the attic just now in a case somewhere and I just couldn't find them before I came here I can give you literature look at verse 26 of Genesis chapter 1 it says there let us make man in our image and there are two things we need to say about that verse do you notice the plural there let us make man in our image and that because it is using the, the plural form of God Elohim and some people have said to themselves well because there's a plural form there let us make man it surely speaks of the Trinity Father, Son and Holy Spirit well it might do but plural can be two as well as three 
I wouldn't lay too much emphasis on that verse alone. But the fact is in the New Testament, we believe that the Father's the creator. We believe that Jesus was the agent in creation. We believe that the Holy Spirit hovered over the face of the deep. And therefore the Father, Son and Holy Spirit were all involved in creation. So because of the New Testament and what we believe about the Trinity, Father, Son and Holy Spirit, it's great to come back to the Old Testament. Let us make man in our own image. So it's good to have that uh, plural there in that story, let us make man. But what does it mean to be in the image of God? One thing it doesn't mean is that we bear a physical likeness to God. To be made in his image does not mean that we bear a physical likeness to God. The Bible clearly says in the New Testament that God is a spirit and they that worship him worship him in spirit and in truth. And when the Bible talks about uh, God having this uh, ability to touch or to hear or to see, that is for our benefit. To help us really understand a God who is sensing what's happening in your life and mine. He touches, he walks in the garden, he can see, he can hear. But he's not physical as we are. To be in the likeness of God is not a physical likeness. What does it actually mean? It means that we were created rational and spiritually and morally responsible beings. Created as moral, responsible beings. The likeness to God is a spiritual likeness. A spiritual agreement with the will of God. We have a soul or a spirit. And that's so important in the difference between ourselves and the animal kingdom. We have the ability to respond to God in your life and mine. Some people were at the day away yesterday. Perhaps you haven't had that opportunity to respond to God. Each one of us has that wonderful opportunity to respond to the dictates of God the Holy Spirit. As he speaks into your heart, as he speaks into my heart, we have a soul, we have a spirit. I prefer the word spirit actually, because Jesus said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Stephen said, Father, into my hands I commit my spirit. I prefer the word spirit. We have a God-shaped blank in our lives that can respond to God in a way that the animal kingdom cannot. And so what we're actually saying here, to be this particular thing regarding the Holy Spirit, we are created rational, moral, responsible beings. There's something else that we need to learn here is that, that Jesus said, I, if I be lifted up, will draw all men unto me. There's something in your life and my life which is like a magnet. It's attracted to what is good and wonderful in the Lord Jesus Christ. And Jesus said, when I am lifted up, I will draw all men unto me. He's a mighty magnet. And we need to feel the prompting of God's Spirit in our lives today. What's God saying to your life? What's God wanting to do in your heart and life? Because the word of God said we are created in his image with the ability to respond to God.
What do we learn from being created in the image of God? First of all, it's because of this that man is a co-worker with God. God never said to any of the animals he created, I want you to work for me. But he said to mankind, I want you to be a a co-worker of mine. Remember we said that what God forms, he fills. And God has asked mankind to continue that very thing. That mankind is able to form and fill. He is able to till the ground. God said to mankind or to man, I want you to till the ground. Now whenever you think about gardening, (laughs) to till the ground is not a sin. It's not because of sin. It feels like that, mind you, that you're going through purgatory (laughs) to till some ground. It's the toil that is the result of sin, not the tilling of the ground. And the God has given to mankind that task to till the ground. Tilling the ground and shaping it is something that God delegated to mankind. And you may remember as we said that what God forms he fills. Have you ever felt that creative bent in your life to form something? To fill something? Not only do we have that idea and that creativity coming through regarding creation, but it comes into your life and mine regarding our families. <coughs> regarding the things we do in society what happens in the church God wants to, to form his church he wants to fill his church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it so what God did in forming and filling creation is saying to mankind I want you to be my co-worker I want you to till the ground I want you to shape and form this ground and fill it and produce from it And that's something that's really wonderful. And there's plenty of evidence that we are created in the image of God in such a way that we are creative. That we form. That we fill the earth, as it were. Being co-workers with God. But not only are we the co-workers by being in the image of God, but we're meant to be responsible beings. Although we are co-workers, we are also under God's authority. We're answerable to God. Man is given permission, it says in Genesis 1, to subdue the earth. That's a great responsibility. We are to be stewards of this earth. He's not given us permission to exploit it or to use it selfishly. When man disturbs the harmony of nature, he does so at his own peril. And that's been happening in other countries in the world. The deforestation that's taken place. He disturbs the, the harmony of nature. He calls into question his position as the steward of God's creation. And the Bible implies although we have dominion over the animal kingdom, we are still creatures. We are not God. The scientist is not God. The sun is not God, as the Hindus believe. We are not God. We are created, as were the other animals as well. They're all created beings. So being in the image of God means two things here. We are co-workers with him. We are stewards of his creation. And secondly, it means we are morally responsible beings. God has put that into our DNA. We are meant to reflect God's image and we are meant to receive God's blessing. 
Look at verse 28. It says there in Genesis 1. God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish in the sea and the birds of the air and over every living creature that moves on the ground. And what we learn from verse 28 is that God's into multiplication. God wants to see the population multiplied. That population multiplication is at the very beginning of creation as it were. And of course that happens in the world today. Does that mean that overpopulation is okay? Does that mean that birth control is out? I don't believe so. Remember what we said, that, that being in the image of God means we are to be responsible beings. God said, fill the earth and subdue it. He didn't say, fill the earth and exhaust it. But it's true that if the rich resources of the West were put into the hands of morally responsible people, a lot of the problems we have in the third world would not exist today. But God is still a God of multiplication. He not only wants the earth populated, he wants his church to grow. He wants to see his church multiplied in this world today. And I'm so pleased to be able to tell you that Christ's church is still being built all over the world. All over the world, God's Spirit is moving. And God is multiplying the church again and again in many different countries. It's very difficult in Europe, but in Africa, South America, God's church is really moving powerfully. And it's wonderful to see that. His church is still growing. Look at verses 29 and 30. It would seem from these two verses here that early man was vegetarian. The picture here is a picture of creation at peace with itself. But is it true? It may be true, of course, that the food of that time was vegetarian. But it's evident that's only when God spoke to Noah after the flood that God said that animals could be eaten. But we actually know in the case of uh, before Noah's time that animals were sacrificed. Otherwise, why would Abel get his sacrifice of a lamb? And then would animals not be killed in Genesis 3.21 for the skins that were made for Adam and Eve? And that brings us to the seventh day. If you look at chapter 2 and verses 2 and 3, let me just read these two verses of chapter 2. Verses 1 to 3. Thus the heavens and the earth were completed in all their vast array. But on the seventh day, God had finished the work he had been doing. So on the seventh day he rested from all his work. And God blessed the seventh day and made it holy. Because on it he rested from all the work of creating that he had done. This brings us to God resting on the day, the seventh day, and they made it holy. You need to go to Israel to realize how important the Sabbath is. is that right, Joe and Sheelan, and those who were with me? I mean, you just, the transport stops. But to say to the guy, what happens if somebody takes ill? Well, there may be an ambulance will come and pick you up and take you to hospital. But the roads are empty. No cars. No buses. No nothing for travel. You're not expected to travel. 
And we were in the hotel, a kibbutz hotel, a Jewish hotel, and all these folks, we were there on the Sabbath day. Of course, Sabbath is from sundown on the Friday to sundown on the Saturday. And these folks were coming into the hotel, and, and they were coming probably to the end of the Sabbath, and they were celebrating with their family. And you would see them standing around the tables. They would be standing up. I think somebody would be reading the scriptures. And all the family would be together. And I got outside and I was speaking to this family, did a wee impromptu magic show outside the hotel. And I was, because I wanted to say, that, what, what do you do on the Sabbath day? Oh, they said it's a family time and we go to the synagogue and we read scripture, read around the table. That was just quite something to see that. They really believe in resting and the importance of the Sabbath day. There was a day when Sunday was a bit like that. I was brought up in, uh, in a home with my grannies at times. I had to go to my grannies. I could not play football on a Sunday. Not only that, but she said, you're not going to whistle on a Sunday. Now, I don't know where the whistling came into it. I was not allowed to whistle. I was not allowed to play football on a Sunday. Of course, the free kick away up in the north of, of Scotland have tried to change a lot of things up there now. But the free church, you are not allowed to walk except go to church and come back to the house. There was to be no walking around and going for a walk or going for a hike. You could walk to church, but that was all, and come back to the house as well. And so you had all these different things happening. Let me say one or two or two things about God's rest. Number one is this. It's the rest of achievement and satisfaction. It's not the rest of inactivity and weariness. God did not stop working and dealing with mankind and being active in his creation because of the day of rest. What did Jesus say in John's Gospel chapter 5 and verse 17? My father is working still, says Jesus, and I am working. The second truth I want to share is this, that only of the seventh day is it said that God blessed it and made it holy. Only on the seventh day does it say God blessed it and made it holy. The rest that God ordains is a rest day that's blessed and it's sanctified. So what is this day meant to be? It's meant to be his day and it speaks to us of four other things. Number one is it's a memorial of past labour. It looks back to God's work being finished. A good work that God did. Everything that God did was good. It's the rest that we have said of achievement and satisfaction. Number two is this. It's the pillar or the testimony of God as creator. It's meant to be a day of worship and praise, not complete inactivity. And number three is this. It's a proclamation of rest. It tells the world to follow God's example. If he blessed it and set it apart, surely it's not just for God. It's for all of us. And number four, it's a type of the coming rest when we go to be with Jesus. 
In Hebrews it talks about that eternal Sabbath, that Sabbath rest, when we go to glory and be with the Lord Jesus Christ. Added to these things, of course, the early church celebrated not only the completion of God's creation, but on the Sunday of Jesus rising from the dead. The day seemed to change from the Saturday to the Sunday. Now if you were to look at Deuteronomy chapter 5, you would find a repeat of the Ten Commandments. And what's so interesting about that repetition in Deuteronomy chapter 5 is that the reason for the Sabbath day is different from that given in Exodus chapter 20. In Exodus 20, God hallowed the Sabbath day because he rested on that day. If you go to Deuteronomy chapter 5, you'll find that God hallowed the Sabbath day because of the deliverance of the people from Egypt. Quite an interesting distinction there between the two passages of scripture. The seventh day then. So we find the seventh day Adventists. You've heard of them, haven't you? They have said to us, you have no right whatsoever to change the day from Saturday to Sunday. This is the day, that Saturday was the day, the seventh day was the day that God blessed. That was the day that God made holy and you have no right to change that. And because you have changed it and you're not uh, adhering to that day, you're bound for you're hell. You're bound for hell. You're not bound for glory at all. That's pretty strong stuff, isn't it, along the way. How do we get round that kind of thing? Well, Paul had to get round it. Because what we have in Romans is a dispute between the Jews and the Gentiles. And these Jewish Christians were saying to these Gentiles, we have got a special day called the Sabbath, and we think you should keep that special day. And the Gentile Christians said, we have no such day. And we have no intention of keeping it. Put that in your pipe and smoke. No, something like that. <laughs> we have no intention of keeping the Sabbath day. So this dispute took place. How do you resolve it? Well, Paul did. He says in Romans 14, 5 and 6, One man considers one day more sacred than another. Another man considers every day alike. Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. And what we find from that scripture is that Paul did not impose the legalistic Jewish Sabbath on the Gentile believers. He did not say, and in fact it's there in Acts chapter 15 in that first council meeting, they were not told you must celebrate the seventh day like the Jewish Christians would. Every day can be a day of blessing. Every day can be a holy day, says Paul. But others of you might want to still celebrate that Sabbath day. One thing I don't think you can say is, that Sunday is our Sabbath. I don't think that's right. Because if you made Sunday your Sabbath, it would be very like the Jewish Sabbath, but all you've done is change the day. Is our Sunday anything like the Jewish Sabbath? Of course it's not. It would start on, it would start on Saturday sundown to Sunday sundown, and all the laws of the Sabbath would be applied to Sunday. The Sunday is Resurrection Day. It's the day we celebrate the resurrection of Jesus. 
And so you find as the early church goes on, because it's largely Gentile, less and less Jews, and, and more and more Gentile people who are not Jews coming into the kingdom, they begin to celebrate the first day of the week. Paul says, we broke bread on the first day of the week. I'll be coming on the first day of the week for the offering that you have for the poor Christians in Jerusalem. So we are celebrating Resurrection Day on the Sunday. But how do you treat your Sunday? Should we go shopping on the Sunday? Some people say, well, my wife and I tend to try not to go shopping on the Sunday. But Sunday's a day of celebration and praise to our God. And if these Jewish folk can teach us anything, it should be a family day. It should be a special day. And that's why I agree with the poster that said some years ago, keep Sunday special. Not because I believe it's the Sabbath day just shifted one day. Otherwise you'd be bringing other things into Sunday that we don't have. But I think Sunday should be special. A time for breaking of bread. A time of praise and of worship. Keep Sunday special. Not because I think it's the Jewish Sabbath shifted to another day. Because Jesus rose from the dead. And we as a Christian church should celebrate that resurrection. Should praise the Lord as creator. And give thanks to God. One thing I want to tell you is this. And I'll close with this. There's such a thing as the moral law of God. And the moral law of the commandments is that we should have a day of rest. And I believe that many of us, ministers included, have suffered because we have not taken the rest that God has given us. Whatever day that day might be for rest, we are not taking the rest. My wife will be getting on to me when I get back. Not taking the rest that God wants to give us. And workers today are suffering because of it. Some people are never out of the office, or never away from the work, or never with the family. And these Jewish Christians, these Jewish sorry, folks that we met in Israel, with their family gathered round and reading the word of God around the table and going to the synagogue and having that wonderful time, they just celebrate the Sabbath day. Folks, we need to rest more. The work can take over our life. The work can be an excuse for not facing up to the kind of person God wants us to be. Sometimes we can hide marriage problems. We can hide spiritual problems in the workplace. Sometimes the work people, the people we work with, we know better than the actual wife or husband we have at home. Or the family we have at home. God's word has given us a moral law. The moral law hasn't changed. The day may have changed. The purpose of the day may have changed. But what hasn't changed is we need the rest that God has given us. And the question is, are you getting the rest that God intends you to have? There should be one day, there should be time in your week when you're able to rest. If you're not resting... You're a recipe for disaster that God never meant you to have. God has given you 
rest. He's worked rest into your DNA. And you need to have it. Even if it's not a Saturday. Or if it's not a Sunday. What rest? Are you? A very, very practical outcome from the word of God. Man was given a day of rest. Let's pray.